Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, March 30th, 2023. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. All right, let's get to the headlines. Move over NATO and G7. China is building its own security and trade alliance with countries like Russia, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, China is threatening to retaliate if House Speaker Kevin McCarthy meets with Taiwan's president next week as planned. We're continuing to track the fallout from the Nashville school shooting. And so far, Congress showing no real urgency when it comes to curbing gun violence. An update from Manhattan as Trump indictment watch will likely drag on for another few weeks. We'll have the latest. Elon Musk and some of the biggest names in tech issue a warning about AI and its risks to society. The FDA approves the first over-the-counter Narcan nasal spray. We'll talk about what it could cost. And Amsterdam is telling a certain group of tourists to stay away. What's that about? Plus, Moshe has on this day in history. Jill, speaking of Amsterdam, a, a certain famous birthday for an artist named Van Gogh, or Van Gogh, as they pronounce it. And uh, a big birthday for one of our favorite game shows, Jeopardy. Da, na, na, na. Na, na, na. Jill, I'm going to cue up the actual theme song for the On This Day segment a little bit later. Is that as fun as singing ourselves, Moshe? I don't know. Not at all. <laughs> all right, we're going to get to the latest on Nashville in a minute, but let's start abroad where we have been tracking some developments out of China. China made some progress this week as it is gradually setting up its own security alliance. It's nowhere near the size and influence of NATO, but Moshe, as you noted on the Instagram account, they have goals. It is called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Saudi Arabia's cabinet just approved a decision this week to join the security bloc, strengthening the country's ties to China and notably away from U.S. interests. Other members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are Russia, India, Pakistan, and then four other Central Asian countries. And there are four observer states, including Iran. So we should keep in mind here that this is very nascent, years, probably decades away from being a competitive international organization. Russia has sought to frame this, though, as sort of an anti-NATO. Russia still missing the days of the Soviet Union when they had a group called the Warsaw Pact, where they uh, basically was a military alliance that was anti-NATO for decades there during the Cold War. And so the Russians have been pushing for a while for a military dimension to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. China's been moving pretty slow here. They are proposing a joint military exercise on Russian soil next year. And so now you have Saudi Arabia joining as, quote, a dialogue partner, uh, whatever that means. So not a full member. But keep in mind, the Saudis are basically hedging their bets here. They're still buying tens of billions of dollars of weapons from the U.S., working with the U.S. military. At the same time, they're also looking east. And it does come as China has been testing out its influence, has been getting uh, more aggressive, more robust as an international player here, as an international uh, diplomatic leader, been spending big money around the world. You might recall that a couple of weeks ago, the Chinese brokered a big deal between the Saudis and the Iranians, uh, longtime enemies to resume diplomatic relations. As part of the deal, the countries reopened their embassies here. Uh, But the bottom line is the Chinese are looking abroad. They're not looking internally anymore. They're looking at the U.S. and saying, you know, two can play at this game. We're done with a world led by just the U.S. 
We think we're competitive. And so you have this sort of role reversal from the Cold War days where the Russians sort of led the anti-US bloc with China as a junior partner. Role reversal, now China leading that international anti-US bloc with Russia as a junior partner. The thing about this is these are kind of like no judgment relationships. Everyone's going to ignore the fact that China literally has concentration camps with Uyghur Muslims in them. China is going to ignore human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, in Iran. uh, And that's how it goes. They're not being held accountable or being held to any sort of standard. It's one of the reasons these countries are looking at China being like, yo, they don't judge us like you Americans and Westerners do. You know, literally, Putin has invaded Ukraine. China's like, that's cool. Not our business. Iran is gunning down women and its own people, uh, tens of thousands of people in prison and demonstrations. China's like, we'll look the other way and keep buying your oil. Saudi Arabia, do what you will. We know that you dismembered a journalist and the various shenanigans you're up to. Again, we're not judging you. This is an economic relationship. We do our thing. You do your thing. And that's effectively what you're seeing here. And that's what the U.S. and Western Europe are attempting to navigate here. Also making news on the China front, the country is threatening, quote, retaliation if U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy meets with the Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen as she passes through the United States next week. China says it would be a provocation, though it wasn't clear what they meant by retaliation. President Tsai Ing-wen is expected to stop in Los Angeles on her way back to Taiwan next week. And that's when a meeting with McCarthy is tentatively scheduled. The planned meeting has triggered fears of a heavy-handed Chinese reaction amid heightened friction between Washington and Beijing over U.S. support for Taiwan and trade and human rights issues. You might recall that a visit by the last House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan last summer caused Beijing to launch missiles over the area. They deployed warships near the island and then carried out military exercises in a simulated blockade of Taiwan. Yeah, China likes to throw out terms like we're going to retaliate, leave things pretty vague. Typically, what that means is probably some sort of military exercises like we saw last summer. A quick background for all of you, because the situation in Taiwan is a bit complicated and has been for several decades. Now, Taiwan lives in this sort of middle ground. While China officially claims Taiwan as its territory, and most of the world, including the U.S., recognize a one China policy, that there's one Chinese country that technically includes Taiwan, but doesn't include Chinese territorial control over Taiwan. This goes back to the uh, Communist Revolution, the Civil War back then in the 1950s. So Taiwan now for decades has been a self-governing democracy, again, while technically part of China, but China does not have territorial control over the island. It has an autonomous government. And so the U.S. doesn't have official relations with Taiwan, but it does keep these unofficial relations. And that's where the Chinese tend to get aggravated. We have this murky relationship where the U.S. does supply the Taiwanese with weapons, does say that China does not have a right to invade Taiwan, even though there is only one China. And in the most recent years, during the Trump administration, uh, a bit during Obama, and now during Biden, we are uh, more robustly supplying the Taiwanese, more vehemently, rhetorically defending them. Again, leaving to doubt whether American soldiers and weapons would be involved in defending Taiwan should China invade. We've left that vague for the most part. But that's where the situation we mentioned in the first part of the story, that this more robust Chinese stance is making them much more comfortable threatening the U.S. uh, when it comes to these meetings that, again, have been had for years, but the Chinese are now saying, no, you're not doing that anymore. We control Taiwan, and we may invade them 
anytime now because it is our piece of land. And so that's the concern here. And McCarthy, interestingly, finds himself in a similar predicament to Pelosi. Uh, McCarthy, by the way, has said he might travel to Taiwan as well. In having this meeting, the Chinese officially look at that as like, whoa, the Speaker of the House is second in line to the president, behind the vice president. This is quite a statement. We don't want this meeting to happen. And so they are issuing these threats. Uh, But I would at this point expect this meeting to happen. And then again, see what this quote unquote retaliation from the Chinese might be. Okay, so back to this visit from Taiwan's president. She says external pressure not going to deter her government from engaging with the world. China, though, as we were just mentioning, says any meeting between Tsai and McCarthy would be viewed as an expression of support for Taiwan's independence and that China would take measures to fight back. Okay, now to the push to address gun violence in the wake of yet another mass school shooting. On Wednesday, Democrats introduced a measure to boost research into gun violence. But even that will likely not have support in the House, which is currently controlled by Republicans. Most this is all following the normal post-mass shooting playbook. And isn't it pathetic that there is a post-mass shooting playbook? We've had so many of these at this point, Jill. We know exactly who's going to respond and how they're going to respond to these situations. Okay, so President Biden pushing Congress to pass an assault weapons ban like the one that existed for 10 years until 2004 until they let it elapse. Republicans, for the most part, say the problem is not guns. It is mental health. And Democrats, who have a very slim majority in the Senate, they say they don't really want to push through gun legislation without support from the chamber's Republicans. And that's because they don't have enough votes to overcome the 60-vote filibuster. So here we are. Last year, about a month after the mass shooting at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, lawmakers did pass a bipartisan gun control package If you remember, that legislation expanded background checks for people under 21, and it also encouraged states to enact red flag laws. Senator John Cornyn, a Republican from Texas, he was one of the key players in getting that package across the finish line. This time around, though, he says he doesn't see anything else that Congress could do on the issue. No surprise, he is dismissing Biden's call for an assault weapons ban. And even expanding background checks, he says, quote, we've gone about as far as we can go on guns. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable that anything got done last year. That was actually the first piece of legislation last year that saw bipartisan support and saw passage on guns going back 20 years. So this is what the Democrats are doing now, the bare minimum. And it's unclear whether that will even pass because, again, Republicans have control of the House. So this bill would direct $50 million a year over five years to the CDC to study gun violence. Keep in mind that even the studying of gun violence has been a controversial subject. Congress prevented the CDC from researching gun violence or its causes through a funding provision years ago that would have made for financial penalties on the CDC if they even researched the topic of guns. In the past three years, with Democratic control of Congress, they were able to reverse that trend and fund some gun violence research. That includes $25 million this fiscal year. When it comes to the issue of mental health here, the Democratic caucus chair, Pete Aguilar, noted that a majority of House Republicans who blame mental health issues actually voted last year against the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. That would have allotted $500 million more dollars towards mental health services, and the vast majority of Republicans oppose that bill. When it comes to the assault weapons ban in Congress, obviously there's the House side controlled by Republicans. Ain't going to happen there. On the Senate side, 40 Senate Democrats have signed on to an assault weapons ban. 
But a couple of them, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, John Tester from Montana, both Democrats who represent red states there and have a re-election battle next year, are not co-sponsoring that legislation. It's controversial in states that you know very much are opposed to any limits on guns. So even Democrats aren't united on this when it comes to the Senate. Uh, Jill, I posted on the Instagram account video of the Senate chaplain. His name is Barry Black. His job is to literally lead prayers in the U.S. Senate. He began his prayers on Tuesday morning by urging lawmakers to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Take a listen. This is literally the person who's in charge of leading prayer saying the time is over for prayers. Lord, when babies die at a church school, It is time for us to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Remind our lawmakers of the words of the British statesman Edmund Burke. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Lord, deliver our senators from the paralysis of analysis that waits for the miraculous. Jill, it is very rare for Barry Black, who literally just opens the session saying, you know, God, please look over our Congress and make sure they make good decisions to actually call them out. I haven't seen that in years, going back to, I think, one of the death ceiling fights, where again, he called out Congress for, you know, literally bringing our economy to the brink. Moshe, I know you've been flooded with comments and responses from people on on social media about the issue of gun violence. What are you hearing? So it's really interesting, Jill, because we have a lot of members of the Mo News community who are gun owners. And they say, listen, we're responsible gun owners. Ideally, we don't want to see limits on the Second Amendment. We believe in the Second Amendment, but it has gone too far for even us. And frankly, it's making responsible gun owners look bad. And so they're suggesting a whole number of measures, including reclassifying certain weapons. I mean, even I have some Mo News community members who own AR-15s and AK-47s who are like, I'd be happy for the government to buy back my weapon or reclassify it in a certain way and not make it available to everybody. Then there are people suggesting insurance requirements for gun holders. In the same way you need auto insurance, the same way you need homeowners insurance, some are suggesting you should be required to have insurance for your gun. So they look into you. Uh, and you are charged your insurance based on your risk profile. Then there's a discussion of magazine limits in terms of how many bullets uh, you can hold in a gun. In many guns, you're looking at 10 rounds, but in recent years with some of these assault weapons, uh, you're looking at 30 rounds, 100 rounds, depending on what magazine you have. And there are very rare, if any, situations where you need more than 10 rounds, 10 bullets in your gun, unless you're in a military-type situation. And so what they're saying is, Maybe we should be looking at magazine limits here if people aren't going to look at an assault weapons ban. Because, Jill, and it seems really dark to say, you know, if we're not going to take away the guns, at least we can limit what types of magazine you have. So that will require aspiring mass shooters to have to reload and put a new magazine in. And there are multiple examples in recent mass shootings where the people have waited for that reload time to be able to escape or rush the shooter. Uh, One of the situations was actually the synagogue shooting in San Diego back in 2019, where they waited for the shooter to reload. And during that time, because they had smaller magazines, that's when they rushed the shooter. The idea here is they could literally only get 10 bullets out instead of 100 bullets, 
And that would literally save some lives in these mass shooting situations. It's so morbid, but any life that you can save is worth it. It goes to the larger thing where, you know, you have some of these people throwing their hands up in the air, but like literally there are things that can be done that shouldn't take away from people's Second Amendment rights that literally when you look at it and you look at the 40 to 50,000 Americans that die from guns and the several hundred that die from mass shootings every year, you might literally be able to save a handful of lives or more with some of these basic provisions. Again, you know, requiring training, requiring people to uh, secure their weapons, creating incentive structure. It's not just sticks, but carrots here. How can you incentivize people by maybe making their weapons cheaper or giving them a lower insurance rate or some other incentive to do more to secure their weaponry? Because again, in just the past few weeks, we had the six-year-old that went to school and shot his teacher. We had the shooting in Denver. We had the shooting in Michigan State. We had the shooting in Nashville, each with different types of shooters, each with different types of guns. But in each instance, there are ways you can look at various provisions, various bills when it comes to security, when it comes to background checks, when it comes to uh, gun control, and when it comes to mental health that could have saved a few lives. Moshe, every once in a while, I treat myself to a little manicure and pedicure. And the person who cuts my nails and puts nail polish on them has a license. Had to go through whatever it was to prove that they were running a clean salon or knew what they were doing. And that's to just put nail polish on me. What? Why? I don't understand the rationale of not requiring some type of training or background check for somebody who's going to have a firearm that can literally take somebody's life. And there's a lot of people who own guns, who have gun experience, who are responsible gun owners, who say, I would be game for that. And there are many countries around the world. I mean, Israel's an example where they require you, if you are a gun owner, to go and get trained every year and show that you can still shoot the gun. I mean, in the same way we kind of view cars in the DMV, you know, go renew your license. You know, certain auto insurance companies provide incentives and discounts to you if you go do extra driver training. And so again, you can get creative here, folks, and think about provisions Think about uh, changes in the law that, again, will not eliminate all of these. You'll never eliminate all of these, but they can certainly save some lives every year. All right, we have a lot more to get to, but first, let's uh, thank one of our partners today. Okay, we talk a lot on this podcast about sleep studies and the importance of getting your eight hours. We are so happy to be partnering with a brand that helps you do just that. Bowl and Branch, you'll wake up feeling rested and refreshed with the softest, most luxurious sheets from Bowl and Branch. They are made with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash and have already been bought by millions. Jill, that includes me and my wife, Alex. And as I learned recently, four American presidents have used Bowl and Branch sheets. Best of all, Bowl and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. Sleep better at night with Bowl and Branch sheets. Starting now, Mo News listeners can have early access to their spring sale and save 20%. Use the code MONEWS to get that 20% off today at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B O L L A N D B R A N C H.com. The promo code MONEWS, M O N E W S. Exclusions apply. See site for details. All right, time now for the speed read. Let's start with an update on Pope Francis. From the AP, Pope Francis was hospitalized with a respiratory infection Wednesday after experiencing difficulty breathing in recent days. He'll remain in Rome at the hospital for several days of treatment, according to the Vatican. 
which also said he does not have COVID-19. The Pope is 86 years old. He had part of one lung removed when he was younger due to a respiratory infection, and he often speaks in a whisper. The hospitalization was the first since Francis spent 10 days at the hospital in July of 2021 to have part of his colon removed. Jill, you mentioned that he had part of one lung removed as a young man, and that's one of the reasons they've always been concerned about him, especially in recent years with COVID, that he's only working on a partial lung here. And so this raises immediate questions about his overall health heading into busy Holy Week events that are due to begin this weekend with Palm Sunday. A spokesman said Francis had trouble breathing in recent days and then went to the hospital for tests. They do expect him to spend a few days in the hospital. His schedule has been cleared. Uh, The Pope says he feels moved by the messages of support and prayer that he has received and is hopeful about returning for the holidays. Okay, now to a quick status update on Trump indictment watch from Politico. The possible criminal indictment of Donald Trump could dangle over American politics for yet another month. The grand jury looking into the Stormy Daniels hush money probe is expected to take a break for the next several weeks. So the jury did not meet on Wednesday and will take up unrelated matters today and next week. And that's going to be followed by a previously planned two-week break. Now, this is all subject to change. But as of now, that new timeline would delay any Trump indictment to no earlier than late April. So we should keep in mind here that grand jury proceedings are secret and subject to change, but that doesn't prevent the rest of us, Jill, from speculating and trying to figure out what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. So there's been a lot of political and legal speculation trying to rush in and fill the void here with a lack of information. And they could literally already have their decision made up, but officially the grand jury needs to vote. And sometimes voting takes as little as five minutes because the indictment vote does not need to be unanimous. And the standard of proof, again, is a mere preponderance of the evidence, not overwhelming. They're not finding someone guilty. They're just saying there's enough evidence here that we should indict Trump because he could maybe be guilty. That's what a grand jury decides here. So there's a whole wide range of speculation here that the DA basically knows everything is lined up and is just waiting for a better moment here. That It could be that the grand jury does want to hear from more witnesses. It could be that they haven't figured out a deal with Trump and how an arrest would go down. So there's a lot going down here. But again, literally, when they decide to make the decision, if they make the decision to indict, it could take less likely than an hour, according to experts who've seen this before, because the grand jury, again, would just vote and say, yeah, you can indict him. You might be guilty. Okay, now to a follow-up on that deadly tornado that hit Mississippi last week from the Washington Post as a monstrous tornado neared Rolling Fork. Residents say sirens were silent, raising questions about warning systems in poor rural communities. One resident says, I'm not sure it would have saved lives. The tornado came in so quickly, but it would have gotten people's attention. They would have known to get inside to try to get somewhere safe. A storm chaser described driving through the city moments before the tornado, desperately alerting people. The person in charge of sounding the sirens reportedly had trouble getting them to work and eventually was able to activate at least one of the sirens. Still, residents living nearby say they didn't hear anything. At least one complained that the sirens were hard to hear to begin with. Some received cell phone notifications. Others said that their phones were silent. The death toll from those weekend tornadoes in Mississippi and Alabama are at least 26 at this point. And you mentioned Rolling Fork, where uh, at least 13 of the deaths occurred. 
Notably, when you look at the history here, these outdoor siren systems were not designed for tornadoes. They were actually created back in the day to alert citizens to enemy attacks during the height of the Cold War. But over time, partially because thankfully the Cold War never became a hot war, these systems took on another purpose, alerting people to natural disasters. And so the use of outdoor sirens for tornado warnings began in the 1970s. But many small towns and rural areas only have a handful of them. Now in the 21st century, obviously TV and phone notifications can quickly alert thousands, but then sometimes you have power outages or cell phone towers go down. So surveys show that people still prefer those sirens. And the problem that you mentioned in Rolling Fork is part of a larger problem uh, when it comes to a number of rural areas in the country. There's a lack of investment in emergency preparedness in predominantly poor areas around the country, including this area of Mississippi, which is a very poor, mostly black corner of the state. Mosh, when I was a reporter in Lansing, Michigan, uh, many years ago, I was actually covering a tornado and it was nighttime. And I remember I was in a live truck with my photographer, David Parks, and it was nighttime. So that means you can't see a tornado coming. And it was only because we heard the sirens that we knew to go inside. I remember I was actually on the phone with my news director at the time. And I'm like, I think there's a tornado siren going off. What should I do? He's like, go inside. What do you mean? Run for for cover. I'm like, oh, okay. And so Dave and I, we grabbed all the stuff and we ran in and we actually just knocked on somebody's door and went and just waited it out in the basement. But having been through it, I can tell you, it's just this visceral thing. You hear the siren, you know, there's a problem and you know that you have to take shelter. Jill, you clearly didn't grow up in the Midwest where we had tornado (laughs) drills. Uh, Growing up outside Chicago, we had tornado drills from a very young age. They taught us what to do uh, in the hallway, you know, get into secure location, etc. And they would test the sirens, uh, at least where I grew up in Lake County, Illinois, on a pretty frequent basis in the spring. But what's notable here, and we mentioned this on a previous podcast, is Tornado Alley is moving towards the south, areas that didn't typically get tornadoes. So this is moving to areas where for many years they didn't have to go through this tornado exercise, but now they do because of where tornadoes are hitting. And there used to be a tornado season. And now you're seeing tornadoes all winter long, all spring long in the summer. The season is sort of going away. And so it really behooves a lot of us to get trained up, you know, know to find a bathtub, know to put a piece of plywood over the bathtub or a mattress over you. There's a whole bunch of things. You can Google them online on what to do in case you hear those sirens. From CNBC, the FDA approved sales without a prescription of the nasal spray Narcan to reverse opioid overdoses. It is a decision that promises to significantly expand access to the life-saving treatment. Narcan reverses fatal overdoses by blocking the effect that opioids have on the nervous system. The nasal spray must be administered as soon as an overdose is suspected. The FDA's decision means people will be able to buy the four milligram nasal spray in supermarkets, convenience stores, gas stations, vending machines, and online. Most, there is still no word, though, on what this is actually going to cost. So if it's over the counter, it's likely that insurance will not cover it. Right now, in some cases, it costs about $130, but that's before insurance. So um, this is going to be one of the big questions. Yeah, the head of the FDA uh, says that the agency wants emergent biosolutions, that's the manufacturer here, to make the nasal spray available as soon as possible at an affordable price. So we will see uh, what they come to here. Uh, They are hoping it'll be on shelves as soon as this summer. The push to make Narcan easier to access is part of the FDA's effort to fight the opioid crisis. The Trump administration 
back in 2017, declared the opioid epidemic a public health emergency. That's something that the Biden administration has renewed as an emergency every 90 days. The first wave of the epidemic started in the 1990s with prescription opioids, but there's been a major increase in deaths over the last 20 years, nearly 600,000 Americans over the past 20 years. And this comes especially as we've seen the influx of fentanyl over the border over the last decade. More than 71,000 Americans died from synthetic opioids alone in 2021, and that was an 18% increase from the previous year. So the goal here is to get Narcan into as many places and hands as possible to try to save some lives. From the New York Times, more than a thousand tech leaders and researchers, including Elon Musk, have urged artificial intelligence labs to pause developments of the most advanced systems. In an open letter, they're warning that AI tools present, quote, profound risks to society and humanity. According to the letter, AI developers are, quote, locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. It sounds like a plot to some sci-fi horror film, Mosh. Others who signed the letter include Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, Andrew Yang, entrepreneur and candidate in the 2020 presidential election, and Rachel Bronson, who's the president of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which sets that doomsday clock. Oh, yeah, we're always a few, uh, a few minutes there from midnight and the end of the world uh, for, based on those doomsday clock people. But it's interesting here, Jill, because literally what this letter says is, uh, all of you, please stop uh, creating AI that is more powerful than GPT-4. That's the uh, latest version of ChatGPT we told you about recently. It can pass the bar exam. I can do a whole variety of things. And the concern here is, we need to be more cautious in creating this artificial intelligence as not to create something that can take us all out, that is smarter than human beings or can get smarter than human beings, you know, Terminator-like scenarios. And this comes as you not only have ChatGPT, but you also have Microsoft's Bing uh, incorporating some of this stuff, Google's Bard, all performing human-like conversations, creating essays, writing computer code, a whole variety of things. And right now, there's a race between all these tech companies to create the next great AI system. And as we know, tech companies tend to move quickly, uh, quote unquote, I think Zuckerberg once said, break things and then figure it out later. And the concern here is that if you bring that philosophy to AI, it might be too late for the rest of us. It is interesting, Jill, here that Elon Musk is involved in this because Musk separately has a whole technology he's been pushing, trying to get approval for, to put computer chips in the human brain, and the FDA keeps uh, rejecting him on that. So he's certainly messing around here as well. But clearly, you know, Wozniak, a co-founder of Apple, Elon Musk, these are serious tech people who say, can we just take a breather here, folks, and figure things out before we create something that we will regret at some point? So Kara Swisher interviewed Sam Altman, who um, is one of the co-founders of OpenAI, and talked to him about just the promise and the pitfalls of artificial intelligence. And I have not listened to the interview yet, but one of the things that she mentioned when talking about it was that he said in a lot of ways, the government is really what should be funding this type of research. It's so powerful that it should be controlled by the government. It shouldn't really be up to these private companies, as this letter said, having this kind of out of control race to develop the technology. Right, because companies are not thinking about the betterment of humanity or limits. They're thinking about profit, right? And it's a race between these companies 
You know, they're all freaked out. I mean, Google brought back its co-founders because they were so freaked out by how much progress Microsoft was making on their AI product. But keep in mind, Joe, and we talk about this a lot on this podcast, including those TikTok hearings last week, the government is so behind on regulating tech, it's still figuring out what to do with the tech that was created over the last 20 years. The last real tech regulations came in the mid-90s. Remember the internet back then? Those of you who remember the internet back in the mid-90s? Those are the rules we have today. They haven't figured out social media. They haven't figured out Web 2.0. And now we're living in Web 3.0. And the government is not there yet. I think this is a theme of today's podcast, from guns to to technology. Jill, there's going to be a congressional seat that's very competitive in your district open (laughs) next year. Since your congressman is George Santos, I think you should run. Okay, moving on from CNN, Amsterdam is asking young British men to stay away if they plan to visit the city to cut loose and go wild. The Netherlands capital's new online campaign to tackle nuisance tourism launched this week. It targets visitors between the ages of 18 and 35. If British tourists search online for terms like Stag Party Amsterdam, Cheap Hotel Amsterdam, or Pub Crawl Amsterdam, a video appears warning them of the consequences of drinking too much, taking drugs, or causing trouble through antisocial behavior. Last month, Amsterdam announced a ban on the use of marijuana on the street and several restrictions on alcohol use in its red light district, where about 10 to 15 percent of the city's tourist industry is based. Yeah, this is not the Amsterdam of our youth. Amsterdam has been trying to clean up. They're sick and tired of these tourists taking advantage of the city. They're going to move the red light district out of the central area. They're limiting the sex shows and the brothel opening hours and the marijuana use, etc. They're trying to make Amsterdam a great place to live in again, make the city livable, etc. And you've seen, Jill, a number of European cities who uh, are very anti-British stag party, as they call them. Our bachelor parties over here are called stag parties over there. And so there's been a number of European cities that are just like, we cannot have it with the British stag parties. Uh, They cause nuisance or worse in our towns. And so you see Amsterdam cracking down here. Amsterdam will also be launching this month, Jill, what they call a How to Amsterdam campaign, which are aimed at visitors already in the city. Through social media and street signs, tourists will be warned about drunkenness, causing too much noise, buying drugs from street dealers, and a ban on urinating in public. Again, Amsterdam has had a certain reputation over the past few decades, and they're looking to turn over a new leaf here. Will it work? We'll see. Jill, it's funny. When when I graduated college, I backpacked Europe uh, with a buddy of mine. I was hoping there was going to be a story. (laughs) (laughs) And so we did. I actually had an internship with NBC at the Olympic Games in Greece in 04. And on my way, we backpacked Europe, London, (laughs) Amsterdam, Paris. Um, Obviously, always been into history. But it was like, at the time, it was 2004. And Amsterdam was still Amsterdam. Like, everything was legal there. You know, we weren't living in the America we do today, where 30 states have legal marijuana and all the rest. And so in Amsterdam is where you got to embrace this sort of thing. And it's just so interesting to see 20 years later how Amsterdam is just like, we want nothing of that. We do not want the marijuana tourism. We don't want any of that stuff anymore. We want to be a livable, peaceful, residential, historic European city enough with these crazy tourists. So young Mosh was like, eh, I'm not going to go to the Anne Frank house. I think I'm going to smoke marijuana (laughs) in the red light district. Jill, it was actually possible to both go to the Van Gogh Museum, (laughs) the Anne Frank house, and then partake in what was legal in Amsterdam. (laughs) I forgot there's 24 hours in a day. You're right. 
All right, now to On This Day in History, on this March 30th, 42 years ago today, President Ronald Reagan was shot and wounded as he was leaving the Washington Hilton Hotel. He ended up breaking a rib, puncturing a lung, and having serious internal bleeding in that assassination attempt. Two police officers and uh, press secretary James Brady at the time were also wounded. You might be familiar with the Brady Bill against gun violence that was passed in the aftermath of that assassination attempt. Reagan, by the way, would end up spending nearly two weeks in the hospital there uh, recovering, and it was pretty close at certain points. And there was a time on that day, on March 30th, when the media was asking who's in charge here, because at the time, Vice President George H.W. Bush was away. And so there's an infamous moment where the Secretary of State Alexander Haig stands before the media and says, I'm in charge here. Interestingly, Haig is fourth in line for the presidency and was mocked to no end after that being like, actually, dude, you were not in charge. But he declared it because he just felt like somebody had to step in and say somebody was running the government. Jill, a sign of times here. It was 20 years ago today that the most significant cigarette ban took effect in the U.S. at the time in New York City. A ban on smoking in restaurants and bars officially took effect today in 2003. And if you recall, it was very controversial at the time. I do recall I was living in New York City, actually, at the time. And I was thrilled because I've never been a smoker. And and I used to go out to bars and restaurants and there would be so much smoke that when I would come home, my hair would smell like smoke. And I remember I'd sometimes have to take a shower and I'd still smell kind of like the smoke coming out. I remember not wearing a jacket in the winter when we went out to like bars and restaurants during college because I didn't want to come home with a smoky jacket that I would then have to dry clean. And it was interesting because at the time you had restaurants and bars being like, this is going to kill our business if you ban smoking. And lo and behold, 20 years later, you know, restaurants and bars still doing okay. You got to credit Mayor Bloomberg for that. Right. He ended up being successful with a cigarette ban. The eventual ban he would propose on things like big gulps and uh, large sodas, that one never quite made it though. A bridge too far. A bridge too far, Mosh. <laughs> take away my cigarettes, but do not take away my big gulp. Jill, your husband's favorite moment of the podcast, a happy birthday mention today to a few famous people, Celine Dion, Warren Beatty, MC Hammer, Eric Clapton, and Paul Reiser, all with a birthday today. And just since we've been talking about Amsterdam, one Vincent van Gogh, also born on this March 30th. This is when he's going to say to me, that's 30 seconds I can't get back, Jill. Jill, it was actually 17 seconds. You just made it 30. <laughs> All right, we talked about it at the top. You know that tune. That's the Jeopardy tune. On this day, 59 years ago, Jeopardy first premiered on NBC March 30th, 1964. The host at the time was a guy named Art Fleming. Of course, for many years, it would then become Alex Trebek. And today you have that shared hosting situation with Maya Bialik, uh, aka Blossom Russo, and Ken Jennings. I was about to say, she'll always be Blossom to me, Mosh. <laughs> Okay, on that note, we want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Those reviews make a difference, so please leave us a review if you can today. And don't forget, beyond the podcast, to follow us over on the Instagram account, the Mo News Instagram account, at Mosh, at M-O-S-H-E-H. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast.